The Hamlet Podcast, episode 149. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. Now that a new act is underway, we continue with our two clowns, busy as they are at work. We stopped last week with the first gravedigger's conclusion that he that is not guilty of his own death shortens not his own life. Our second clown is very much the second fiddle to the main gravedigger, he who will have most of the jokes in this scene. The second clown asks the questions and seems a little bemused, so that the first can perform his shtick for the crowd. The beginning of this scene is not unlike the porter's appearance in Macbeth. Directly after the shocking death of Duncan, he appears for some comic relief. Here and now, right after the horrible news of Ophelia's death, these fellows serve a similar function. Now number two questions the notion of a person's culpability in their own demise, and he asks, but is this law? For now he gets a straight answer. I marry ist, crowner's quest law. As mentioned last week, the crowner is the coroner. Here quest is short for inquest, so plain and simple, this is how the coroner's inquest law has to work. The second clown moves to a new thought. Well, you had the truth on it. If this had not been a gentlewoman, she should have been buried out of Christian burial. Do you want to hear the truth about this, he's asking. If Ophelia had not been a gentlewoman of the court, there was no way she would have been buried in holy ground. She would have been buried out of Christian burial. These two men are the only glimpse we get of any ordinary working people in this play. The vast majority of the action takes place inside the castle grounds of Elsinore, and there's something really interesting about hearing these ordinary voices. If Ophelia's father hadn't been so influential, there'd have been no question about this poor young woman having ended her own life, and she would be subjected to the standard burial reserved for suicides. The first gravedigger agrees. Why, there thou sayest. You've got it in one, he's saying. And the more pity that great folk should have countenance in this world to drown or hang themselves, more than they're even Christian. More's the pity, he's saying, that great folk, higher-ranking members of society, should have the authority or permission to drown or hang themselves if they so choose, more than their fellow citizens, or their even Christian. He's questioning the fairness of a society that seems to uphold one morality for the rich, who can get away with it, and another for the ordinary people. Before the two men become revolutionaries, Shakespeare shows us that authority and power exist at every echelon, and we see who's in charge even between these two fellows. Come, my spade, he shouts. Perhaps he's trying to get the attention of the other man lost in seditious thought. He calls for his spade, and they get back to work. As he goes about his business, he makes a confusing or intriguing comment. There is no ancient gentleman but gardeners, ditchers and grave-makers. They hold up Adam's profession. He's saying that there is no tribe of people, no ancient gentleman, that can hold a candle to gardeners, ditch-diggers and grave-makers. These are the original workers, since, as he puts it, they hold up Adam's profession. The second clown perhaps like many contemporary audiences, seems a little confused here. He's stuck on the idea of Adam being a gentleman and questions this alone of all that his companion has said. Was he a gentleman? 
the first clan answers wittily. He was the first that ever bore arms. Of course he was. Adam was the first man, so of course he was the first person to have arms. The joke behind this is, of course, that in order to be considered a gentleman, one had to have a coat of arms. So if Adam bore arms, naturally enough he was a gentleman. Confused again, the second clown is fixating on the coat of arms reading of this joke. Why, he had none. Of course he didn't. Adam lived in the paradise of Eden, unencumbered by such human follies as class or coats of arms. The first clown corrects him pretty quickly. What, art a heathen? How dost thou understand the scripture? The scripture says Adam digged. Could he dig without arms? He gets another laugh out of the idea. The second clown is a heathen, therefore, an unbeliever, he's suggesting, if he can't even understand the basics of scripture. In the Bible, he's saying, it says that Adam digged. This was the profession that they're talking about. Adam digged. He was therefore a gardener, a ditcher, or a gravemaker, those that make their living by digging. And how, he jokes, could Adam dig if he had no arms? These jokes are all a little simple and they might seem to us rather vague, but there's actually more going on underneath. A little over 200 years before Hamlet was written, there was a big revolt in 1381. The Peasants' Revolt, as it is now known, during the early reign of Richard II. It was a major uprising across England in response to socio-economic tensions at the time. One of the major events of the revolt was a sermon given by a preacher called John Ball. In it, he asked, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then a gentleman? This ties in very neatly with our gravedigger's assumption that Adam digged or delved. But the next sentence of this famous sermon is the important one, because Ball continues that, from the beginning, all men by nature are created equal. So an awareness of these lines makes much more sense of the banter between our clowns, they're talking about the inequality of Ophelia's funeral within the graveyard, and they're tying it to the point that Adam, God's first creation, lived at a time of much greater equality, and then they liken themselves to him, since he was also a delver, or a digger. Now, the Bible has no such description of Adam as a digger. In fact, the book of Genesis says that it was Cain that tilled the earth, while his brother Abel kept sheep much as I'd love to be suggesting here that there's some sort of a nod to murder between brothers bringing us back to the behaviour of the gentles at the Danish court, sadly I don't think there's anything like that going on. Our merry gravedigger just makes his joke about digging and Adam and social inequality, most importantly. And sadly, most of this is lost on us without all of this context. An audience might still laugh at the arms joke, or they might even laugh at the bemused second clown who doesn't understand any of this and lets it go over his head. Either way, the first clown changes course again and offers another puzzle. I'll put another question to thee. If thou answerest me not to the purpose, confess thyself. I'll ask you something else, he's saying, and if you don't get this right, you might as well throw in the towel. Confess thyself and be hanged was a common expression. Before being executed, a criminal was encouraged to confess his sins and then he would be hanged. The phrase was common enough that it didn't even need to be finished here. In fact, the second clown interrupts, saying, go to. So we just get, confess thyself, go to, 
which is something rather like shut up or get on with it. So the first asks his question, a kind of a riddle. What is he that builds stronger than either the mason, the shipwright or the carpenter? Who is it, he asks, whose work is longer lasting than the work of the mason, who works in stone, the shipwright, whose creations are designed to withstand water, or the carpenter, the master of building with wood? The second clown gets a gag here, and he makes a clever response. The gallows maker. For that frame outlives a thousand tenants. His answer is the man who builds the gallows, for the frame he builds outlasts huge numbers of brief occupants. The gallows were, of course, where criminals were hanged. A gallows maker could presumably hope to see his creation outlive a great number of clients or users. This is, quite literally, gallows humour. With this grim play on words, we'll leave it for this week. Be sure to tune in next time to see what the first clown might have to say in response. And in the meantime, there'll be notes on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, to give you some more detail about the Peasants' Revolt, the Book of Genesis, the King James Bible, and of course, Shakespeare's own quest for his own coat of arms. I hope you'll check it out. Do be sure to follow us on social media, at Hamlet Podcast, and I'll speak to you next time.